This is Jameson Morton, and you're listening to Legalist Rainmaker Podcast, where we interview attorneys at top law firms about how they made partner. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is Eric Weibust. Eric is a partner at Seifarth Shaw. Eric co-chairs Seifarth's litigation department at their Boston office um, and is most well-known for his trade secret and restrictive covenant practice. Uh, welcome to the show, Eric. Could you start us off with uh, an introduction to your firm and uh, your practice as a whole? So Seifarth is a full-service firm. Uh, we have more than 900 lawyers across 16 offices worldwide. We have practices in litigation, corporate, real estate, immigration, and labor and employment, among others. And we have subspecialties, of course, within each of those practices. Um, I joined the firm's Boston office in 2006, following a one-year clerkship on the Second Circuit. And I've worked my way up from from first-year associate to where I am now, which is a partner. Um, As for my practice, you know, first and foremost, I consider myself a commercial litigator. I will litigate any type of commercial case anywhere in the country. And in fact, I've litigated all sorts of cases all over the place. Um, that being said, in any given year, I'd say that about 50 to 75% of my practice is focused on trade secret and restrictive covenant litigation, with the uh, remainder focusing on all types of other commercial litigation, including real estate, franchise, uh, commercial contracts, trademarks, copyrights, you, know, you name it, I've done it. Um, but if you look at my uh, bio on the firm's website or my LinkedIn page or even my writing and speaking engagements, you'll see that I primarily market myself publicly as a, as a trade secret and restrictive covenant attorney, whereas internally I also uh, work closely with our transactional groups um, to help their clients when litigation arises in any particular area. Um, so, for instance, we have a really good uh, real estate practice at the firm, and through that group, I've had several opportunities to work on big and small uh, real estate litigations. And for several years now, um, I've served as uh, National Real Estate Litigation Council for one of the world's biggest convenience store chains, handling primarily their commercial lease disputes, but also uh, some franchise litigation. And, you know, I don't market myself externally in these other areas uh, because I don't want to water down my, my trade secret brand that I've been building and because I see most of those other types of opportunities arising internally at the firm, um, I do spend a lot of time internally marketing myself to those to the lawyers who are on the transactional side, so that when litigation arises, they come to me. Awesome, and you know, like you said, one of your specialties is in trade secret and restrictive covenant litigation, and you've done such cases in a number of dis- different industries, including you know pharmaceutical companies, uh, insurance companies, and even some tech companies. Um, how are trade secret cases different uh, or maybe similar across different industries? Sure, that's a great question. Um, so, of course, it's extremely important to know the industry and, and your particular client very well in both trade secret and restrictive covenant litigation, as it is in any type of litigation. Um, in trade secret litigation, the law is relatively consistent nationwide, thanks to the Uniform Trade Secrets Act, which has been enacted in every state except New York and the newer Federal Defend Trade Secrets Act. And so the differences in those types of cases and the nuances largely and often come down to the facts, you know, understanding the technology or the formulas or the business data that's at issue and that's considered a trade secret. You know, why is it important to the company that 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 information remain a secret? How does it give it a competitive advantage? 
Um, what is the company doing to protect that information um, from being misappropriated? And that can all be extremely different from industry to industry. Um, you know, think the technology that a robotics company has um, is, is developing versus the drugs that a pharmaceutical or biotech company are developing. They're very different, and you need to understand them well need to be able to understand them in order to represent your client's interests. Um, on the other hand, in restrictive covenant litigation, you know, the facts, they're of course always different, but they're somewhat similar. They follow a similar pattern. Um, an employee or executive leaves and joins a competitor, maybe takes something with them, tries to steal clients or hire other employees. You know, it typically fit, uh, fits into that type of, of narrative. Um, but the law could be wildly different from state to state. For instance, California does not permit uh, the enforcement of non-compete agreements in most circumstances, whereas most other states do, and states like Florida will, will often enforce them very broadly. Um, so in addition to, of course, understanding the company and the industry it's in, you also need to be up to speed on the law of whatever jurisdiction you're litigating in, in, in that type of case, and as in any type of case. Right. That's that's super interesting. And Eric, you know, since a big part of your practice revolves around, you know, trade secret litigation, uh, I'm curious as to how you found this specialty. Was there like an aha moment or something like that you could tell us about? That's another great question. Um, so actually, one of the reasons I first joined SciFarth um, was because during law school, I really enjoyed kind of the human aspect of my labor and employment law classes. Um and although, you know, we've got a big labor and employment practice and I joined um, the firm's litigation group, which is different, and I, I was never really been interested in your traditional labor and employment practice, handling discrimination and wage and hour type claims. I've always been, been more interested in commercial cases. Um, but the firm is very well known for that type of work, and I thought there would be some opportunities for overlap with the, the more complex commercial litigation and the, and the human aspect to it. So... Early on in my career, I was staffed on some trade secret and restrictive covenant cases, and I found that they, you know, I hadn't done anything, I didn't have a class on that in law school or anything, but um, I found that they had that balance that I was looking for, the complex commercial case with the human touch. Um, I really enjoyed working on them, so I started focusing my attention on that area of law and on those types of cases about writing in that area, credentialing myself in that area, and we do a lot of that type of work at our firm. Um, because of our big employment practice, spins off that type of work. So, so it really ended up working out for me nicely. That's really interesting. So it sounds like you stumbled upon trade secret litigation by chance, and yet now you are an expert on that topic. Um, in fact, I know you've published over 80 articles about trade secret litigation through various outlets. Um, I also know that you give talks and you do webinars regularly. Uh, so could you speak to the benefits of these types of activities? And then the follow-up there, um, should young associates seek to establish thought leadership as well? Um, so I personally, I've always really enjoyed writing articles and blog posts, something a little different than the legal writing. And I'm lucky because my firm has a great trade secrets blog, and I'll give it a plug here. It's, it's tradesecretslaw.com. Um, and the firm's also really supportive of both partners and associates, publishing articles, taking on speaking engagements, and the like. Um, and, you know, while I can only hand point to a small handful of cases that have come directly or, or new matters, new clients that have come directly from an article or a speaking engagement, I would say that others certainly have come indirectly. Um, I think it's really important 
both as a partner, but also as an associate um, to credential yourself. You know, if somebody's looking for a trade secret specialist, for instance, or if another lawyer, either internal at my firm or from another firm, wants to refer litigation, uh, they and the client are going to see that I'm credentialed in that area and that I know what I'm talking about. Um, and as for young associates, I really think that writing articles and blog posts um, and speaking when they have the opportunities is really one of the best ways for them to engage in business development and grow their personal brand and practice. Um, it also you know, provides them with the opportunity to work with partners and other associates that they may not otherwise be working with on, on billable um, work for paying clients and to build those relationships, which are, which are also critically important um, for career growth. You know, I'll, I'll often staff associates on cases that I have when they've shown an interest in the subject matter of the case, either by writing an article or a blog post um, or speaking on it, especially, you know, when they're doing that type of activity proactively without having to be asked to do it or told to do so. Um, and, you know, as a partner, I continue to find that writing articles and blog posts helps keep me up to date on the, on the law, the cases that are coming out. Um, and in fact, you know, working with other partners and associates on these types of things really helps me keep in contact with, with people in the other offices we have who I may not see every day and in other practice areas even if we've got some good crossover. Um, so for instance, just a quick example, over the past, I guess it's been two months now, well, we've all been quarantined and working from our home offices because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, two other partners, Marcus Mintz and Jeremy Cohen and I, uh, they're in the, in the New York and Chicago offices. Um, we wrote a series of 10 or 11 blog posts on trade secret issues relating to the pandemic and remote work and all of that. Um, you know, in addition to, to, to keeping the firm, you know, the, the credentialing going and the thought leadership going, as much as anything else, it really helped me feel connected to the firm and to those guys at a time when we're all working remotely, which is not something I, I particularly enjoyed. Um, and really when you need some more adult, professional human interaction, I think it's a good way to do that, both working remotely, but also, you know, within the firm in particular for folks in other offices. With that, Eric, um, let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about how you made partner. Uh, was it because you brought in a major case or was it more of a culmination of years of good work? It was definitely more of a culmination of years of good work and not a particular major case I brought in. Um, at SciFarth, there's no requirement that you have a book of business or even any business to make partner. Really, the requirement is that you have the potential to bring in business. Now, obviously, if you've brought in work, then you've, you've shown that potential, but that's not the only way of showing that potential. Um, I had a small amount of business when I made partners, certain not, certainly nothing to brag about. Uh, but I think far more important than that is that I showed to the partnership that I was a go-getter, a team player, that I was trustworthy, responsive, hardworking, and, and a good lawyer. Um, you know, I never turned down work. I was always trying to stay in front of the issues and showing the partnership that I was motivated and cared and that I, that I thought like a partner, which is something that's important to them, that you think like a business owner, because that's really what you are at the end of the day when you're a law firm partner. And um, I think all of that is what got me over the goal line. It certainly wasn't a, a big case that I landed or a marquee client. So you mentioned that as a candidate for partnership, you know, it's really important to think like a business owner, and that stuck out to me. Um, is that where you see associates come short most of the time? What are some other mistakes you see associates make? And, you know, the follow-up there, what, what would be your advice for them? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think first and foremost, associates need to learn the craft 
and also avoid getting out over their skis too much. Um, there are too many associates, and I was probably one of them early on, who want to be partner right away, who want to bring in a huge book of business. They want to land that marquee client, but they haven't yet developed the basic skills to run a case, um, to understand strategy and providing you know valuable advice. And they haven't put in the time and effort necessary to become a partner. Um, but on the other hand, as you noted, I think associates do need to start thinking like partners and thinking like business owners early on in their careers and engaging in level appropriate business development activities, whether that's attending networking events, writing articles and blog posts, which we've talked about, getting involved in industry and bar organizations and doing all of these things early on um, and, and growing them as you progress through through being an associate will lead to bigger and better opportunities. You'll get to speak at the conferences you're going to. You'll get to put your name first or yours is the only name in the article. Um, and ultimately, all of that is going to lead to business, either directly or indirectly. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, this is really a relationship business. So associates should also spend a lot of time um, building real relationships with their peers who will at some point become you know, decision makers and buyers of legal services. This isn't the same as going to a, a networking event and collecting cards or sending LinkedIn invites to people that you that you may have encountered. This is about building real relationships um, that will last, that, that will stand the test of time, and that will turn into business. Um, you know, law firms are a business after all; they're here to make a profit. Um, and the least successful associates, you ask, you know, what associates are doing that are mistakes. The least successful ones, who are those that may be really smart know their stuff, know the area of law, but they spend all of their time locked in their office. They're not building relationships. They're not writing articles. They're not going to conferences. They're not even socializing internally with, with others in the office. Um, and all of that, I think, is critical to success, especially at a big law firm. Absolutely. Um, you know, and that's something that we've heard consistently on the podcast. Uh, and I want to dive a little deeper on how to build and maintain a book of business. You mentioned, you know, the importance of building meaningful relationships, uh, but to be more specific, you know, what are what are some tactics that young associates um, should start implementing today? So again, I think building a book, a book of business, as I just mentioned, is all about personal relationships um, and also knowing your practice area, your clients, your prospects, and the industries better than anybody else does. Um, and in addition to having those attributes, though, you've got to let others at your firm and let the market know that you have them so that they know to call you. Um, you know, a lot of business at big firms comes from internal referrals, either from institutional clients or from other partners' clients, um, you know, in the transactional groups, for instance. And they're just looking for a good litigator who can handle any type of case and give good advice and is not going to embarrass them with their client or, or you know, lose their client for them. So there's a lot of internal marketing and business development that needs to happen, too. It's extremely important. It's not just the external marketing, which we've talked a lot about today, and is obviously also important. And you, know, you also mentioned maintaining client relationships in addition to building a book. Um, I think that as far as maintaining relationships goes, the two most important things you can do are to provide practical legal advice and to be responsive. You would be amazed at how many times I'll have a new client tell me um, that when I called them back within an hour or even the same day that they reached out to me, even within 24 hours, that this is a new concept to them and that their prior lawyer or their existing lawyer just would wait three days or five days to get back to them on something simple. Um, or alternatively, that their lawyer 
their current or past lawyer, um, doesn't take into account the business realities that they're facing and just says no and focuses solely on the risk rather than having a thoughtful conversation about the risks and making sure the risks are known, but trying to figure out how that plays into the business's strategy and the realities that they're facing. It's, it's, you know, they may have to take the risk or they may be willing to take a risk. The answer isn't always no. And a lot of lawyers just don't get that. Thanks, Eric. Those are, you know, some great tips and uh, really appreciate the insight. Um, for our last question, you know, we wanted to ask about litigation funding. Um, have you ever used litigation funding before? And, you know, what are your thoughts on its place in the future of law? Yeah, you know, I was originally very skeptical of litigation funding because um, I considered myself to be a defense lawyer primarily, and I just didn't see the, the point or the value in it. Um, but the more I really dug in and learned about it, which I've been doing over the past year or so with a couple of partners, we're working with our firm to see if they'll um, permit us to, to use it. I think that there are actually some huge opportunities to build a, and maintain a good, reputable commercial practice using funding. Um, you know, I think trade secrets in particular is an area that's ripe for litigation funding because you'll oftentimes have a startup or a development phase company that simply just doesn't have the money to fund an expensive litigation, even if the alternative is to potentially lose their trade secrets or, or you know, go out of business. Um, and funding provides them with that opportunity to protect their rights and interests against a wrongdoer that they, that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Um, and you know, in the current environment, again, with the COVID-19 and the economy being shut down, a lot of companies I think you're going to see and are already seeing are going to have liquidity problems and not going to be able to afford litigation. And even those that don't have liquidity issues um, are facing ex internal and external pressure to keep expenses down, either to maximize profits for shareholders or to maintain their payroll, keep people on the, on the books and stuff like that. Um, and it's becoming, frankly, more palatable, in my view, to big firms who, who don't do traditional contingency fee cases um, so I think you'll see a big uptick in the use of litigation funding in the coming months and years, and I'm hoping that, that we're able to take uh, full advantage of that at Cypherth. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the Law Firms of the Future, presented by Zero, AI-powered email for innovative law firms. Each episode features an innovator within the legal industry and discusses actions lawyers can take to improve their delivery of legal services. Past guests have included former general counsel and head of legal ops at Attenti Global and the executive chairman and co-founder of Gunner Cook. You can find the law firms of the future anywhere you get your podcasts. All right. Thanks for listening. Legalist is a tech-driven litigation finance firm that helps lawyers get paid. Rate our podcast and give us a review wherever you find your podcasts. See you next time.